This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Tuesday, November 15th. The weather forecast, we've got cloudy skies, a slight chance of some flurries this morning, and then on and off flurries and rain showers later on today. The high, plus 4 degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, a 17-year-old is stabbed in a Scarborough High School. Number two, a murder-suicide now suspected in the death of an 8-year-old girl in Oshawa. Number three, no goodies for Toronto in the fall provincial economic update. Number four, government officially cancels the anti-QP bill. And number five, a fading Donald Trump will make a key announcement tonight. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.08 on a Tuesday morning, not just any Tuesday morning, it's November 15th, so it's the the Ides of November, we're halfway through the month of November, drawing a little closer to Christmas. Also, if we want to get into this day in history, this is the day in 1976, the Pouts Québécois won power in Quebec and just turned everything in this country upside down. And as a matter of fact, There are so many people potentially listening right now whose lives were completely changed by that one election and then the introduction of Law 101 and the migration of all these businesses and head offices from Montreal to Toronto. It's often said that anywhere between about 500,000 and 800,000 Quebecers, most of them Anglos, moved out of the province and an awful lot of them came here. I've often said that Toronto to Montreal is kind of like Miami to Havana. It's full of a lot of expats who are still pretty angry about it. But that was a good long time ago, and a lot of things have changed since then. And let's get into present-day news. For example, it's zero degrees with a wind chill of minus four. So we're beginning the day much as we did yesterday. It's cold out there. But we did not get the dusting of snow that had been a part of the weather forecast yesterday. There was a possibility we were going to get about two centimeters of snow in the night hours. Doesn't seem to have happened in in our immediate area where my house and these studios are. But if you did get snow, I know some people were sending me pictures yesterday from areas north where they had actually, they were having to brush off the car. It wasn't like anybody was paralyzed by the snow or it was interfering in traffic. But, you know, it's a cold reminder of what lies ahead for the next many months. Uh, What lies ahead for the next many months is also um, masking, although we've entered into some pretty oddball territory these days where nobody's creating mandates, but they're very, very, very urgently urging you to please consider. Um, Let's go for number 21. This be Dr. Karen Moore yesterday. You would heard it live on the Jerry Yegar show, so um, some of this stuff is um, getting a little bit old, uh, but worth revisiting as we wake up on a Tuesday morning. And if you haven't grabbed your mask on your way out the door um, for months at a time now, you probably are going to do so today. In response to the worsening trends and existing challenges for our healthcare system, I'm strongly recommending that all Ontarians, not just those at high risk, wear a mask in indoor public settings, especially around our most vulnerable Ontarians, the very young, and the very old. I'm also recommending that if possible, children between two and five wear a mask with supervision if they can tolerate the mask and safely put it on and off. 
And it's such a flashpoint for many people because I think the mask is a proxy battle for all kinds of other issues. And, you know, there's a very small cohort of people who don't believe that there ever was uh, a problem with COVID. Others who believe that when governments um, stepped in and created all kinds of mandates that it was overreening nigh on to fascism. But, you know, as we move back toward masks, I think that's where the trepidation to actually impose mandates comes from. It's that a portion of the population is ready to fight and a portion of the population is just exhausted by the whole thing. But, you know, we'll throw on the masks. Nick Marano, did you tuck a mask into your pocket on the way out the door today? Yes, I did. I see. I forgot. I got them in the glove box, but uh, I forgot to grab one on my way out the front You can door. buy mine for $10. Oh, okay. Oh, we're going to create an aftermarket uh, for masks? Yeah, it, it's funny, but you were saying off the air, it's this sort of checklist in your head, right? You step out of your house and it's like, got my keys? I got my keys. Uh, do I have my wallet? Yeah, I got my wallet. Uh, do I have my mask? Ah. Okay, mask. And now, of course, it's getting colder, so you got the toque and the gloves, and then the list is too long. Um, I forget what they said in Boy Scouts. I think five things is the most that anybody can imagine at any given time, and then you have to start making a checklist. Uh, a couple of things from the crime blotter. A 17-year-old student stabbed at a Scarborough High School yesterday, grade 12 student, age 17, uh, Birchmount Park Collegiate. And we do not know the circumstances, but Toronto police say there is no threat to the public. So I guess that means that this, you know, the attacker has been apprehended. The teen was said to be facing the poss you know, a critical injury and is still in hospital. We're expecting an update this morning. And then, you know, parents rushing to the school. Things are so different now. I mean, back in the day, your parents wouldn't even hear about this, right? Because they wouldn't even get a robocall or anything like that to tell them that there was something amiss at school. They'd either show up outside the school, although my parents never walked me to school. Uh, they would, but, you know, some parents would show up outside of school and then the kids wouldn't come out and the kids wouldn't come out. And people would say, okay, something's going on here. Also, the police are attending to the scene. Uh, but nowadays, you know, there's all these stories of parents who were in real-time communication with their kids via text. One mother had two sons in the school who were texting back and forth, telling her they were locked down in their classroom. And then when the kids were ultimately freed up to leave the school and go home, they described a trail of blood down one of the corridors. Uh, the other police blotter update is just an unspeakable tragedy. And we don't know a great deal about this, except that in Oshawa, a murder-suicide is suspected, an eight-year-old Ontario girl dead, her father also dead at the scene. Uh, names not being released, and uh, at the moment, neighbors are tight-lipped, except to say there was a 38-year-old man and an eight-year-old daughter. We're going to be hooking up with our friends at CP24 just minutes from now. And one of the things we'll spend some time on this morning is the mini-budget or the fall economic statement that came out yesterday, Peter Bethlen Falvey, the finance minister, delivering his statement. We're back in deficit. I think a lot of people are like, how did that happen? I mean, the circumstances haven't changed that much. Um, and then there's the question of whether or not there was ever going to be anything in that document for the city of Toronto. Because John Tory, you'll remember, made his plea right here on News Talk 1010, asking for money from Queen's Park and money from Ottawa. And so far, that's going unanswered. Now, I suspect that the province will probably pony up. 
They just didn't want to put it in the economic statement because that would have distracted from things. And if you live in Sudbury or Ottawa or Burlington and, you know, any number of municipalities, you're probably a little irked at how Queen's Park bails out the city of Toronto. So the check may come. It's just don't put it in the fall economic statement and distract from everything else. And time now to say good morning to John Moore, News Talk Radio 1010. See what he's talking about today on the radio. Good morning, John. Good morning, George. Nice to be here. Good to have you, John. Let's start here. More violence at a Toronto high school yesterday. It's always going to be disturbing when there's a violent incident inside one of our high schools. This was at Birchmont Park Collegiate, which is in Scarborough. 17-year-old grade 12 student was stabbed. We don't know the circumstances, don't even know whether or not somebody's been apprehended, but police say that there is no danger to the community. Um, as of this morning, the 17-year-old was still in uh, critical condition. The school was under lockdown, an awful lot of parents gathering outside and then communicating with their kids you know, via text and trying to find out what was going on in the school, but there was never any danger to the rest of the student body. Okay. And it's official. We are in a flu epidemic. It's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, sure I remember is. when we declared the pandemic with COVID two and a half years ago. Um, but the people who keep tabs on the amount of flu infection that there is in Canada say that we're officially in a flu epidemic. And George, this is a coming together of three different circumstances, right? We have conventional flu, and then we have COVID, which we continue to battle. And then we have this respiratory illness, which seems to be affecting kids more than adults. So no major guidance in terms terms of how anybody should necessarily change uh, their comings and goings. But then yesterday morning, as you guys had live on CP24 and we had live on News Talk 1010, we did have the new guidance on masks, which was to return to masking indoors. But right. it's only guidance. It's not a mandate. Correct. Uh, the Ontario's uh, fall economic update was read yesterday in legislature by uh, Minister Bethlen Falvey, who you'll be talking to today. Minister Bethlen Falvey is going to be on our airwaves at 8.20 this morning to talk about the mini-budget yesterday. Um, I think the thing that stands out most is certainly that we were touting a surplus. We had a $2.1 billion surplus for 21-22, and now all of a sudden we have a $12.9 billion deficit. A few takeaways yesterday, including the fact that there was no goodies for the city of Toronto. And of course, you guys talked to John Tory. We talked to John Tory. He said, unless he gets money from the province and the feds, then Toronto can't balance its budget. But there was nothing for Toronto yesterday. And next, uh, the feds are addressing the, uh, the kids' meds shortage directly. Could be a few weeks down the pipe, but Health Canada has secured a foreign supply of children's and acetaminophen, and it'll be available for pharmacies in the coming weeks. Uh, this has been a story that we've been covering for the last few weeks, obviously. A lot of parents, I mean, some people were going down to the U.S. and muling the stuff back. Uh, we talked, you and I, about how somebody on Amazon was trying to sell a bottle of children's pain yeah. relief for 300 bucks. Um, but uh, it's going to be about two weeks before this stuff arrives in pharmacies, so the crisis continues. Okay, and finally, the ego has landed. Donald J. Trump will announce another run for the White House. <laughs> Who's going to be his veep? Who wants that gig? I'm not sure. People were talking about Carrie Lake. She was running for governor of Arizona, and of course she would have had to walk away from having been elected just this week, but she lost yeah. last night. She was a Trump star. Uh, there's, there's a short list of people who may run with him. I mean, there's still a slight possibility because his currency is so diminished in the last week that Donald Trump tonight will do what a famous biographer said he always does, which is he announces he's won and he walks out, even if he hasn't <laughs> yeah. won and even if he's finishing a loser. 
But I do think, you know, who is Trump if he's not running for office? So right. I imagine tonight he'll make that announcement, and then moving forward he may just decide, you know, I've done my, my part, I'm leaving. Yeah. Good way to avoid uh, prosecution in court. Or yes. Is being a president. They can't, really, they can't really toss you in the clinker, or even try to, if you're the president. <laughs> yeah. Or even if you're running, it's just bad form. Uh, John, great stuff. Thanks so much. Have a good day and a good show. That's George Lycajanis, our friend over at CP24. Time now, 5.23. And we don't need to dwell on Donald Trump for too long, but it's been quite the sideshow for six or seven years. I guess if you want to count backwards from that, uh, him being on reality television was also a tremendous sideshow. But it's I've been comparing this to the scene in The Wizard of Oz where they act and, you know, they throw a bucket of water on the Wicked Witch and she dissolves. And then everybody goes, oh, we are free because people are completely stepping away from Donald Trump right now. She did. You killed her. Hail to Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead. Hail, hail to Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to revel in it too much, but the triumphalism when Trump was powerful was uh, quite something. And there is nothing more diminished than somebody who plays the bully who then ends up being overturned because everybody enjoys the downfall that much more. It's how Mussolini ended up being, you know, hung upside down. So we'll uh, hear from Donald Trump and his announcement tonight. But in the week since the election, and it has been a week since Americans voted, uh, Donald Trump's power has been tremendously shrunk down. And it took another hit last night when Kerry Lake who was running for governor of Arizona. Remember this one? She um, turned on reporters and basically called them all stupid, even though she used to be a news anchor. And she said, just you wait. I'm going to serve for eight years, and I'm going to make your lives miserable. Now what does she do? <laughs> she just lost. Now she's pretending, like many people have, that it's all because of um, crooked ballot counting and stolen elections. But you know what? Last note on this whole thing the overwhelming majority of election deniers were defeated in the election. So the fever in American politics is breaking. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Another cold start to a November morning. It's zero degrees outside. It's that time of year where we start giving wind chills and the wind chill at this hour is minus four degrees. So in Ottawa yesterday at the inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act, and remember, this is on a pretty strict timeline. It's going to wind up before the end of this month and with considerable drama, I imagine, because Justin Trudeau is going to have to testify along with Christia Freeland and a few other people, Bill Blair. So, you know, they're going to be, as people like to say, on the griddle. And it's a bit of a tennis match. Because, you know, one day evidence comes to bear where you find out about armed insurrectionists in Alberta. And then another day you have testimony like they did yesterday where people from CSIS, intelligence officers, were asked, did the threat to democracy and public order and all that stuff that the cabinet seems to have perceived, did that materialize in any of your intelligence? And... Diplomats said, yeah, listen, um, or not diplomats, but people from CSIS said, 
that it didn't actually meet the definition that has been established in the act that would justify invoking it. All right, here to provide some more perspective on this is our public safety analyst and former commissioner of the OPP, Chris Lewis. Nice to have you, sir. Good morning. Good morning, John. So, you know, as I said, it's kind of going back and forth. And some days, I guess some people could argue, ah, that's it. The government, uh, you know, is going to be vindicated in all of this. Uh, quite frequently, though, uh, people are asked, did the government need to invoke this act? And they're saying, no, not really. No, that's right. The existing legislation uh, was sufficient, according to everyone, including, you know, uh, the commissioner of the OPP and, and the commissioner of the RCMP, she hasn't testified yet, but she said in earlier testimony, uh, it didn't meet the threshold. Uh, but that's the threshold that that is um, uh, dictated by the CSIS legislation. Uh, and it's a little more serious in that legislation than if you look at Public Safety Canada's website, and that's where Bill Blair uh, is was minister at, at that time. And it talks about more threats to infrastructure that you know, could cause harm to the public, like an electrical outage or whatever. Yes, people could die because they'll freeze to death and things like that, as opposed to the CSIS Act, which talks more about kind of that that attack, that trying to overthrow a government by violence and, and the threat to people that way, as opposed to through the loss of power or some infrastructure issue. Okay, so if we were to set aside the Emergencies Act, what do you see? Do you think that we need some framework in order to deal with something? Should we ever be confronted by something like the convoy protests again? We do, for sure. You know, the Emergency Act in Ontario actually has a fair amount of teeth to it. And Premier Ford put that into a place a couple of days ahead of the Emergencies Act. But that's a little dated, too, because things have changed. So some of the legislation needs to change it. It doesn't have quite enough teeth to it. If it had enough teeth to it to force for example, services uh, uh, to provide service to the police, like tow truck companies, uh, that would have been a big help. And it you know, took the federal legislation to make that happen, which I don't think was ever considered when that act was written. Uh, so why not give the provinces more teeth in legislation uh, and a better process that's more transparent as opposed to government cabinet has a secret meeting, decides that you know it's a threat and invokes it, and then there's a whole bunch of... Uh, you know, sh shading and, uh, and other things going on that people will never quite understand. Um, so let's put it to the province. That's where the policing jurisdiction lies anyway, not with the feds. So based on what you've seen so far, are you making any fearless predictions about what you think this judge is going to conclude? I don't know, because we have yet to hear from the feds. The yeah. feds clearly lied along the way. Uh, what will he make of that? Does that have a big impact on anything except politics? I don't know. Uh, I'm not I'm not hopeful to see a whole pile of wonderful stuff come out of this. Thank you very much, sir. Good to have you. Thank you. To Take care, John. Bye-bye. Chris Lewis, who's uh, on the road. I think he was calling us from an airport somewhere. Or no, he was calling us from what? Somewhere in Europe, Joe Cristiano. He's in Frankfurt. He's in Frankfurt. Why we have people all over the world now. That is former OPP commissioner, News Talk 1010 public safety analyst, Chris Lewis. So um, I haven't seen whether they've actually issued a calendar as to when Justin Trudeau and company are going to be on the stand. But it is worth noting, the whole mandate here is that the judge must convene or a judge must be appointed to convene an inquiry within six months of declaring the Emergencies Act. And he has to hand in his report roughly in a one year after the declaration of the act. So testimony is going to wrap up in a few weeks. 
and then the judge has all through Christmas to uh, mull his wine and uh, mull his verdict. And it's going to be interesting because it may end up being kind of a nuanced affair. The judge may say, you know what, I don't believe you ever met the threshold for uh, declaring the Emergencies Act, but at the same time, things were so completely dysfunctional and police were so paralyzed, I don't see another means of having put an end to things. Because it was, it was fairly rapid. I mean, there was nothing, nothing, nothing for three weeks. There was total police paralysis and impotence. And then they passed the Emergencies Act. And within a couple of days, the trucks had been either shooed out of the nation's capital or towed away. People had been arrested, ticketed, charged. Some are still behind bars now. And the whole thing came to an end. And not only that, but I, I find myself wondering if it's, it's a bit like the Idle No, not the Idle No More protest, actually, the uh, Occupy Wall Street protest. Maybe those people actually went and sunk their resources into other places and they went to work for charities and political groups and they started door knocking for their chosen candidates. Maybe some of them ran for office, but I've never really seen any sort of fallout from the Occupy Wall Street protest that suggests that they actually worked. And I, I think the same can be said of the convoy protesters. I know that there are a lot of people who supported the convoy protesters or participated in the protest who will insist that the ultimate lifting of quite a few mandates was because of what they did. But that reminds me of a video that you can pretty easily find on the web of this guy in Montreal who pretends to be starting and stopping the subway. And he runs in and he grabs the subway as it's pulling into a station and appears to pull on it. And then the subway stops. And then the doors open and people come and go and the doors close. And then he puts his hands on the side of the subway and starts pushing it out of the station again. I, I think it's kind of a false credit to insist that the convoy protests had much of an impact on anything. Um, speaking of laws, at Queen's Park yesterday, they basically erased the law that was brought in, what, a week ago last Friday? I've lost track of the timeline now. But the government brought in a, the law which imposed a contract on QP education workers and took away their right to strike. And that was pretty strident stuff. They invoked the notwithstanding clause just to make sure it would work. And then everything suddenly went sour. And the government made an offer. If you go back to work, we will take this off the table. The educators went back to work. And yesterday, Doug Ford followed through. And it's like it never existed. I have to wonder about, you know, the ink and the paper and uh, all of the human effort and, you know, the per people who had to marshal it through the house and then run it off to the lieutenant governor for signing. And now it's like it never existed at all. And incidentally, the negotiations are continuing with uh, education workers in the government. Government did sweeten the pot, and we have not had any signal from the union yet as to whether or not that sweetening is approaching something they would agree to. Um, so at this juncture in all of this, even though there was considerable acrimony, it appears people are still talking, there's still a mediator involved, and there's no threat at this point of another strike. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Speaking of the convoy, there's a great debatable issue in the news today that is convoy related. Two of the people who organized it, who are currently up on charges, say that they can't afford to 
fight. And in particular, what they're uh, worried about is, you may recall, this young woman who, during the convoy protest, got sick and tired of the horn honking. And ticket police weren't doing anything about it, weren't handing out any tickets, weren't shaking anybody down. So she finally went to court and got an order to make everybody stop honking their horns. Well, she went ahead with the help of a lawyer in filing a class action suit on behalf of all of the people who lived around the protest area whose lives were turned upside down and on behalf of business people who lost money. And two of the organizers who say they're going to have to fight this lawsuit say they can't afford to do so. So what they've done is petitioned a judge to let some money out of the frozen funds that were donated to the convoy protesters in order to pay their lawyers' bills. Once again, in all of this, it's going to be the lawyers who get the last laugh. You know, both the lawyer who's fighting on behalf of the class action and the people who have to defend themselves. And then I wonder if any money will ever be dispersed. But it's uh, it's an interesting debatable, so we put it on the agenda for the roundtables at 7.45 and 8.45. Because these are people who got together, organized a protest, made a nuisance of themselves, ended up in trouble and afoul of local residents and business people, now being sued in what some people could say is chill. And they say they can't, they're just ordinary people, so they don't have the money to to pay their lawyers to fight back. Fun sort of uh, parlor game piece today in the Toronto Star, Ben Spur, writing from the City Hall Bureau, but speculation on who's going to replace John Tory, who may have just laughed out loud if he's listening, which he often does at this hour. I mean, John Tory got sworn in yesterday, and I'd have to double check, actually. Maybe Joe Christiani, you can double check this, because I know Shelley Carroll was tweeting about it, but I didn't follow the timeline. Um, but when the new city council is officially seated, I think yesterday was the old outgoing council, and there was a goodly number of people who retired or didn't run and a few who lost. And so there is a fairly significant transition. Um, but then John Tory being sworn in, and as I was reading those words this morning, I was remembering the swearing in of Rob Ford so many years ago. And remember that? Don Cherry put that in your pipe, what was it you leftist, whatever, wackos, and smoke it? What? That was just such a beginning of, of an attitude at Toronto City Hall where it wasn't enough that some people didn't necessarily vote for the guy or really like him a lot, but he had to fly in your face. But I read that all the time now. It's, part, it's sort of the, the Trumpian aspect and, uh, of, of things these days. I'll frequently hear from people saying, oh, that person lives rent-free in your head. Or owning the liberals once again. Okay, listen, how about you do policy instead of just trying to fly up the nose of your political enemies? Jeff Bezos is one of the richest guys in the world. It's always been funny to watch uh, him and Elon Musk and Bill Gates leapfrog over and slip behind, and it all depends on their stock value. But Bill Gates has vowed to give away his money, and now Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is saying he's going to do the same. And that comes just as he handed $100 million to Dolly Parton to donate to whatever charity she wants to donate to. NBC News Radio National Correspondent Aaron Rial joins us on the story. Aaron, good morning. Good morning to you, John. Yes, so it turns out Bezos, who has been criticized in the past for his 
relative lack of charitable donations compared to some of his fellow billionaires. He is, he is famously not a signatory of the Giving Pledge, which encourages the world's wealthiest to give half their net worth to philanthropy. And it was set up by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. It's attracted more than 230 signatures. Elon Musk has signed it. Zuckerberg has signed it. Bezos has not. However, he and his partner, the journalist turned philanthropist Lauren Sanchez, they say that they're considering the best way to distribute his wealth to good causes. And he's, like you mentioned, given $100 million to Dolly Parton. This was all a part of his annual Courage and Civility Award. This is not the first time he's given away $100 million. She can use it however she wants. She, her big charitable organizations are usually literacy. But the $100 million donation is the third Bezos has made as part of this Courage and Civility Award. He made similar grants to Chef Jose Andres and climate activist Van Jones. And again, Parton can use this money however she sees fit. She has this ongoing charitable project, including, uh, including Imagination Library, and it's a popular literacy effort that is now close to sending over 200 million free books to young children in five different countries. Um, and, and over the next 10 years, Bezos has committed $10 billion to the Bezos Earth Fund, which Sanchez co-chairs, and Amazon is one of the 300 companies that have promised to reduce their carbon footprint by 2040. That's in line with the goals from the Paris Climate Agreement. So it seems like while he might have been late on the uptick, he's certainly getting there now. Although I would imagine, Aaron, the thousands of workers he's about to lay off would have preferred that instead of giving money away, he just continued to pay them. Well said. Yes, that is another big story that he's about to, I believe it's 11,000 people are, are likely going to get the axe uh, today, I think it is, at, um, at uh, uh, Amazon. Amazon. So yeah. It, this is, I, I almost said Yahoo. I was like, nope, wrong one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he has so many entities. But yes, so that's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of money. And when you have $124 billion, it, it isn't that much money. But the fact of the matter is, it this is a wonderful way to be spending it. And Dolly Parton has done incredible work over the years, as has Jose Andres. He was recently in Ukraine feeding, uh, you know, refugees uh, across the border and in the country himself. This is not a man that's afraid to roll up his sleeves and feed those in need. So, and Van Jones, climate activist. So the, the money is going to good causes, that's for sure. Thank you very much, Aaron. Nice to have you this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. Aaron Real, NBC News Radio National Correspondent. And we have found that historic piece of audio, Nick Marano. Let's listen. I put that in your pipe, you left-wing kooks. <laughs> that was, for many people, a glorious day because they always felt that the uh, left in this town had run the table. And so they were very happy to see Rob Ford with the chain of office. And then in comes Don Cherry in all his high-colored glory to tell the leftists to go get stuffed. Uh, it was very funny, actually. I uh, got an email from Joe Warmington, who's clearly listening right now. Joe Warm Warmington from the Toronto Sun with the same quote in it. So I, it's always amazing that if I can't remember something perfectly or if I don't know a fact or I'm wrong about something, then I'm always going to hear very, very quickly from all of the people listening. And, you know, then we straighten out the record. It's 5.55. And put that in your pipe, you left-wing <laughs> kooks. <laughs> That is The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.